Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis. Go green with solar panels or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3. Wuthering Heights, I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, sipping on some morning English breakfast tea and enjoying a cool-ish Savannah morn. The heat has broken. Fall is poking out its gimlet eyed face and looking around and saying, can I spread some merriment here in Savannah? And the answer is yes. Now look, don't get me wrong. It's still going to get into the 90s today, but the evenings, the mornings, they have been cool and their coolness has been edging towards the middle of the day. So it is, uh, it's a good time to be here in Savannah, and it will only get better as the weeks march forward. Travel continues unabatedly, just nonstop. I'm, I'm exhausted from all the moving and the hustling and the bustling. As I say, none of it pays hardly anything. But uh, but I am re- racking up a fair amount of frequent flyer miles, and that is payment enough for me. Because look, for me, it's never been about the money. You know, I just do I do this for love of the game. Just getting on stage, telling jokes. At the, at, at the end, you know, they offer to pay me, and I say, "Hey, your laughter was all the payment that I need. Keep your money. Distribute it to the orphans in the town." But uh, that's not for me. My my. My payment is your laughter. Heading off back to the wilds of Connecticut this weekend to do my annual Puddinhead Festival. The guest of honor this year, Sam B. We're going to be honoring Samantha B. And raising money for the Mark Twain Public Library out there in the wilds of Connecticut. So, you know, a lot of doings. 
a lot of activity, bustling and such. But in Wuthering Heights news, uh, Hinley has just told Isabella, hey, it's three minutes to one in the morning, and before the clock strikes one, I will have murdered Heathcliff. That's where we left it last time on a little bit of a cliffhanger. And look, I think you and I both know Heathcliff isn't going to get murdered anytime soon. I mean, we're on page 161. We've still got a lot of book left to read. So this this plan will not come to fruition, but it's uh, exciting nonetheless, because as always, murder and mayhem are what we come for. And uh, there's rarely enough of it in these classics. Now, if you were to write this book today, my God, man, there'd be car chases and people hanging from helicopters and explosions left and right. But they hadn't invented explosions. The great American author Emily Bronte wrote Wuthering Heights. And, uh, you know, the only thing they could hang from would be a dirigible. Now, they didn't have dirigibles, maybe a hot air balloon. They could have had a hot air balloon chase or something. But that wasn't really the style. And uh, so there's, there's very little of that. Instead, what we get is a lot of talking and a lot of planning and scheming and, and subterfuge. So uh, he has said, this is Hindley now, damn the hellish villain, he knocks at the doors if you were master here already. Promise to hold your tongue and before that clock strikes, it wants three minutes of one, you're a free woman. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brain the guy. I'm going to take a fireplace poker and brain the guy. If she just keeps her mouth shut. So let's see what happens as we pick it up in chapter 17 of Wuthering Heights. He took the implements, which I described to you in my letter from his breast, and would have turned down the candle. I snatched it away, however, and seized his arm. I'll not hold my tongue, I said. You mustn't touch him. Let the door remain shut and be quiet. See? See? You know, within, within two sentences, the plot is foiled. I mean, can't they just... Can't, can't, can't Heathcliff come in and they wrestle around a little bit and somebody punches somebody in the face and somebody else kicks somebody in the nads and, and, and uh, you know, they, they have some, some quips or something like, I'll throw you off a Heathcliff or, you know, something like that. Look, it's early. Okay, I don't have time to come up with snappy action movie dialogue but you, you know you get when i'm where i'm heading henley says no i've found my resolution and by god i'll execute it cried the desperate being i'll do you a kindness in spite of yourself inherent in justice and you needn't trouble your head to screen me catherine is gone nobody alive would regret me or be ashamed though i cut my throat this minute and it's time to make an end I might as well have struggled with a bear or reasoned with a lunatic. The only resource left me was to run to a lattice and warn his intended victim of the fate which awaited him. "'You'd better seek shelter somewhere else tonight,' I exclaimed in a rather triumphant tone. "'Mr. Earnshaw has a mind to shoot you if you persist in endeavoring to enter.' "'You'd better open the door, you.' And then uh, there's a, uh, a dash, and, it's, and it says, He answered, addressing me by some elegant term that I don't care to repeat. <laughs> See, there's a, there's a little joke. She could have said some inelegant term, right? But she says elegant term, and thus makes a funny. Good job, Emily. I shall not meddle in the matter, I retorted again. Come in and get shot, if you please. I've done my duty. 
With that, I shut the window and returned to my place by the fire, having too small a stock of hypocrisy at my command to pretend any anxiety for the danger that menaced him. Earnshaw swore passionately at me, affirming that I loved the villain yet and calling me all sorts of names for the base spirit I even. So everybody's calling your names. Elegant names at that. And I, in my secret heart, and conscience never reproached me, thought what a blessing it would be for him should Heathcliff put him out of misery, and what a blessing for me should he send Heathcliff to his right abode. As I sat nursing these reflections, the casement behind me was banged on to the floor by a blow from the latter individual, and his black countenance looked blightingly through. The stanchions stood too close to suffer his shoulders to follow, and I smiled, exulting in my fancied security. His hair and clothes were whitened with snow, and his sharp cannibal teeth, revealed by cold and wrath, gleamed through the dark. Isabella, let me in or I'll make you repent, he gurned, as Joseph calls it. And we have a little footnote after gurned. Uh, G-I-R-N-E-D. Let's look it up. We haven't had a footnote in a good long while. Always fun to get a footnote and to see what various words and phrases mean. Gurned means grinned, sneered, snarled. So a kind of evil, menacing grin. I cannot commit murder, I replied. Mr. Hindley stands sentinel with a knife and loaded pistol. Let me in by the kitchen door, he said. Hindley will be there before me, I answered. And that's a poor love of yours that cannot bear a shower of snow. Oh, so good. She's, she's giving it right back to him. You know, Catherine's dead and he's standing guard and it started snowing and whatever. And now he's like, oh, I've had enough of the snow. He comes in and she says, well, that's a poor love of yours, sucker. Can't even stand being out in this snow. Some, some love of, some love you have. It's a poor love. Yes, yes, yes. Snickering girder. We were left at peace in our beds as long as the summer moon shone. But the moment a blast of winter returns, you must run for shelter. Heathcliff, if I were you, I'd go stretch myself over her grave and die like a faithful dog. Again, the dog imagery, uh, his, can his, can his cannibal, his sharp cannibal teeth, and she's saying you should stretch yourself over her grave and die like a faithful dog. The world is surely not worth living in now, is it? You had distinctly impressed on me the idea that Catherine was the whole joy of your life. I can't imagine how you think of surviving her loss. He's there, is he? <laughs> Terrible reading. He's there, is he? He's there. He's there, is he? He's there, is he? Hey, is he? Exclaimed my companion, rushing to the gap. If I can get my arm out, I can hit him. I'm afraid, Ellen, you'll set me down as really wicked, but you don't know all, so don't judge. I wouldn't have aided or abetted an attempt on even his life for anything. Wish that he were dead, I must. And therefore, I was fearfully disappointed and unnerved by terror for the consequences of my taunting speech when he flung himself on Earnshaw's weapon and wrenched it from his grasp. Okay, so we're getting a little action here. Uh, although it's, un it's not clear to me how he got in the house. I, I thought he wasn't in the house, that he was trying to get in. But let's just assume that I got it wrong. 
The charge exploded, and the knife, in springing back, closed into its owner's wrist. So Hinley's been stabbed. Oh no, or did Heathcliff get stabbed? It's not clear to me. Heathcliff pulled it away by main force, slitting up the flesh as it passed on and thrust it dripping into his pocket. He then took a stone, struck down the division between two windows, and sprung in. His adversary had fallen senseless with excessive pain and the flow of blood that gushed from an artery or a large vein. So Hindley's been stabbed. The gun has gone off. Heathcliff is in the house, All, and now we've got our murder and mayhem. Thank goodness. I love it. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy the scene for a moment. Heathcliff standing over Hindley, gasping, his hair sodden with snow, the smell of, uh, what, gunpowder in the air, blood dripping on the floor, Hindley in a, in a, in a ball on the floor grasping his wrist, trying to staunch the flow of blood, and Isabella uh, observing the whole scene in some kind of terror. The ruffian kicked and trampled on him and dashed his head repeatedly against the flags, holding me with one hand, meantime, to prevent me summoning Joseph. So the violence gets worse. He exerted preterhuman self-denial in abstaining from finishing him completely. But getting out of breath, he finally desisted and dragged the apparently inanimate body onto the settle. There he tore off the sleeve of Earnshaw's coat and bound up the wound with brutal roughness, spitting and cursing during the operation as energetically as he had kicked before. Being at liberty, I lost no time in seeking the old servant, who, having gathered by degrees the purport of my the purport, I like that, the purport of my hasty tale, hurried below, gasping as he descended the steps two at once. And now we're going to have more Joseph talk, which means, of course, more footnotes. What art thou to do now? What is there to? What is there to do now? What are you doing now? What are you doing now? There's this to do thundered Heathcliff, that your master's mad, and should he last another month, I'll have him to an asylum. And how the devil did you come to fasten me out, you toothless hound? Don't stand muttering and mumbling there. Come, I'm not going to nurse him. Wash that stuff away, and mind the sparks of your candle. It is more than half brandy. (laughs) Unsure, he had been murdering on him exclaimed Joseph, lifting his hands and eyes in horror. If ever I seed a sight like this, may the Lord. Heathcliff gave him a push onto his knees in the middle of the blood and flung a towel to him. But instead of proceeding to dry it up, he joined his hands and began a prayer, which excited my laughter from its odd phraseology. I was in the condition of mind to be shocked at nothing, In fact, I was as reckless as some malefactors show themselves at the foot of the gallows. Oh, I forgot you, said the tyrant. You shall do that. Down with you. And you conspire with him against me, do you, viper? There, that is work fit for you. Meaning, get get down on your knees and mop up the blood, you viper. He shook me till my teeth rattled and pitched me beside Joseph, 
who steadily concluded his supplications, and then rose, vowing he would set off for the Grange directly. Mr. Linton was a magistrate, and though he had fifty wives dead, he should inquire into this. Wait, what? Mr. Linton was a magistrate, and though he had fifty wives dead, he should inquire into this. Why does he have fifty dead wives? What does that mean? I don't know. Well, look, uh, I, I need to sip on some tea. Let's just, let's just uh, call a spade a spade. I need to sip on some tea. Let's take a break. We'll be back in a moment on Obscure. And obscure murder and mayhem. We finally got it. We've got people uh, on their knees in pools of blood. We've got magistrates come a running. We've got Hindley beaten nearly to death. We've got Joseph praying to the good Lord above. We've got all kinds of terribleness happening, and we love it. Now, again, I don't know why Mr. Linton had 50 wives dead. I don't know what that means, but anyway. He was so obstinate in his resolution that Heathcliff deemed it expedient to compel from my lips a recapitulation of what had taken place, standing over me, heaving with malevolence, as I reluctantly delivered the account in answer to his questions. It required a great deal of labor to satisfy the old man that he was not the aggressor, especially with my hardly wrung replies. However, Mr. Earnshaw soon convinced him that he was alive still. So, in, uh, Earnshaw hasn't died. You know, we knew he wouldn't as much as we would like it, just not because we have anything against Henley Earnshaw, though he's terrible, as all people in this book are terrible, but because we just like when people die. He hastened to administer a dose of spirits, and by their succor, his master presently regained motion and consciousness. Heathcliff aware that he was ignorant of the treatment received while insensible, called him deliriously intoxicated, and said he should not notice his atrocious conduct further, but advised him to get to bed. To my joy, he left us, after giving this judicious counsel, and Hidley stretched himself on the hearthstone. I departed to my own room, marveling that I had escaped so easily. Well... Once again, Heathcliff has manipulated the situation and everything has turned out as he would have liked. Uh, Joseph is deeply intoxicated and does not know his up from his down. Hinley is alive. Isabella is cowed. And Heathcliff is standing with malevolent triumph over the entire scene. This morning... When I came down about half an hour before noon, Mr. Earnshaw was sitting by the fire, deadly sick, his evil genius almost as gaunt and ghastly leant against the chimney, uh, meaning Heathcliff, I guess. Neither appeared inclined to dine, and having waited till all was cold on the table, I commenced alone. Nothing hindered me from eating heartily, and I experienced a certain sense of satisfaction and superiority as, at intervals, 
I cast a look towards my silent companions and felt the comfort of a quiet conscience within me. Uh, So even in this moment of, you know, peril and I guess some relief that nobody died, Isabella is being a little bit petty. Although, can we blame her? She doesn't like any of them. She's the one who warned Heathcliff, right? Because Hindley would have killed him. And uh, she did not instigate the action. She tried to prevent it. There was a beating administered. And in the end, Isabella can eat heartily her cold mush and berries, staring at Earnshaw and Heathcliff, who are just standing there, miserable, as always, and feel a certain sense of superiority because her conscience is clean. Well, I guess we can't blame her, and so we're happy for her, but, you know, it is petty. After I had done, I ventured on the unusual liberty of drawing near the fire, going round Earnshaw's seat and kneeling in the corner beside him. Heathcliff did not glance my way, and I gazed up and contemplated his features almost as confidently as if they had been turned to stone. His forehead, that I once thought so manly, and that I now think so diabolical, was shaded with a heavy cloud. His basilisk eyes were nearly quenched by sleeplessness, and weeping, perhaps, for the lashes were wet then. His lips devoid of their ferocious sneer, and sealed in an expression of unspeakable sadness. Had it been another, I would have covered my face in the presence of such grief. In his case, I was gratified, and ignoble as it seems to insult a fallen enemy, I couldn't miss this chance of sticking in a dart. (laughs) His weakness was the only time when I could taste the delight of paying wrong for wrong. Fie, fie, miss, I interrupted. One might suppose you had never opened a Bible in your life. If God afflict your enemies, surely that ought to suffice you. It is both mean and presumptuous to add your torture to his. What? Who? I couldn't miss the chance of sticking in... Oh, oh, this is Ellen talking. Uh, It's very confusing because it's all in quotes and, you know, we're, we're going back and forth here. And so Ellen is saying, Fie, fie, miss, I interrupted. One might suppose you'd never opened a Bible in your life. If God afflict your enemies, surely that ought to suffice you. It is both mean and presumptuous to add your torture to his. In general, I'll allow that it would be Ellen, she continued. But what misery laid on Heathcliff could content me, unless I have a hand in it. I'd rather he suffered less if I might cause his sufferings, and he might know that I was the cause. Oh, I owe him so much. On only one condition can I hope to forgive him. It is, if I may take an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, for every wrench of agony return a wrench, reduce him to my level. As he was the first to injure, make him the first to implore pardon. And then, why then, Alan, I might show you some generosity, but it is utterly impossible I can ever be revenged, and therefore I cannot forgive him. Hindley wanted some water, and I handed him a glass and asked him how he was. The wifey and I uh, started watching House of Hammer last night on the Discovery 
Plus Network, if you're unfamiliar with this particular docu-series, I believe it is a three-part telling of the downfall of the actor Army Hammer and uh, the legacy of fucked-upness that he has inherited. Now, in the first episode, we spend most of it, spend most of the first episode basically in gossip, right? It is a lot of uh, sort of kinky, filthy texts that uh, sling back and forth between him and various lovers that he has, uh, many of which describe all kinds of kinky shit he wants to do to them, but nothing that rises to any sort of criminal behavior. You know, he says, look, I'm a cannibal. I would love to eat you. But he, he, to my knowledge, he has yet to extract any flesh from anybody and cook it until the very end of the episode when uh, one of his loves claims that he raped her for hours. And at that point, we go, oh, this is really, really awful. But Isabella's speech right there makes me, puts me in the mind of all those women that Army Hammer was with who feel uh, degraded and dissed and like, uh, you know, it's the, it's the whole hell hath no fury like idea. And while none of the women interviewed seem at all gleeful about the downfall of Army Hammer, any one of them could have delivered the speech that Isabella has just recited. Kindley wanted some water, and I handed him a glass and asked him how he was. Not as ill as I wish, he replied. But leaving out my arm, every inch of me is as sore as if I'd been fighting with a legion of imps. Yes, no wonder was my next remark. Catherine used to boast that she stood between you and bodily harm. She meant that certain persons would not hurt you for fear of offending her. It's well people don't really rise from their grave, or last night she might have witnessed a repulsive scene. Are not you bruised and cut over your chest and shoulders? I can't say, he answered. But what do you mean? Did he dare to strike me when I was down? He trampled on and kicked you and dashed you on the ground, I whispered, and his mouth watered to tear you with his teeth, because he's only half a man, not so much. Mr. Earnshaw looked up like me, to the countenance of our mutual foe, who, absorbed in his anguish, seemed insensible to anything around him. The longer he stood, the plainer his reflections revealed their blackness through his features. Oh, if God would but give me the strength to strangle, page turn, to strangle him in my last agony, I'd go to hell with joy, groaned the impatient man writhing to rise and sinking back in despair, convinced of his inadequacy for the struggle. Nay, it's enough that he has murdered one of you, I observed aloud. At the Grange, everyone knows your sister would have been living now had it not been for Mr. Heathcliff. After all, it is preferable to be hated than loved by him. Ooh, so she's saying it is Heathcliff's love itself which killed Catherine, and who are we to argue? That diagnosis seems as correct as anything else. When I recollect how happy we were, 
how happy Catherine was before he came. I'm fit to curse the day. Most likely, Heathcliff noticed more the truth of what was said than the spirit of the person who said it. His attention was roused, I saw, for his eyes rained down tears among the ashes, and he drew his breath in suffocating sighs. I stared full at him and laughed scornfully. The clouded windows of hell flashed a moment towards me. The fiend, which usually looked out, however, was so dimmed and drowned that I did not fear to hazard another sound of derision. Get up and be gone out of my sight, said the mourner. I guessed he uttered those words at least, though his voice was hardly intelligible. I beg your pardon, I replied, but I loved Catherine too, and her brother requires attendance, which for her sake I shall supply. Now that she's dead, I see her in Hindley. Hindley has exactly her eyes, if you had not tried to gouge them out and made them black and red, and her, Get up, wretched idiot, before I stamp you to death, he cried, making a movement that caused me to make one also. But then... I continued, holding myself ready to flee. If poor Catherine had trusted you and assumed the ridiculous, contemptible, degrading title of Mrs. Heathcliff, she would soon have presented a similar picture. She wouldn't have borne your abominable behavior quietly. Her detestation and disgust must have found voice. The back of the settle, an Earnshaw's person interposed between me and him, so instead of endeavoring to reach me, he snatched a dinner knife from the table and flung it at my head. It struck beneath my ear and stopped the sentence I was uttering. But pulling it out, I sprang to the door and delivered another, which I hope went a little deeper than his missile. Oh, so she threw the knife right back at him. God, you know, we wish for a little action and uh, we get it. They, they, maybe they don't have the, uh, the helicopter chases, but they've got dinner knives to throw at each other. Thanks, Emily Bronte. The last glimpse I caught of him was a furious rush on his part, checked by the embrace of his host, and both fell locked together on the hearth. In my flight through the kitchen, I bid Joseph speed to his master. I knocked over Hareton, who was hanging... <laughs> Wait, what? Who was hanging a litter of puppies from a chair back in the doorway. What does that mean? What does that mean? Literally hanging, as in lynching a litter of puppies from a chair back in the doorway? I mean, I mean what? Hard to say. All right, fine. And blessed as a soul escaped from purgatory, I bounded, leaped, and flew down the steep road, then quitting its windings, shot direct across the moor, rolling over banks and wading through marshes, precipitating myself, in fact, towards the beacon light of the Grange, and far rather would I be condemned to a perpetual dwelling in the infernal regions than even for one night abide beneath the roof of Wuthering Heights again. Isabella ceased speaking and took a drink of tea. Oh, Isabella ceased speaking and took a drink of tea. Then she rose, and bidding me put on her bonnet and a great shawl I had brought, in turning a deaf ear to my entreaties for her to remain another hour, she stepped onto a chair, 
kissed Edgar's and Catherine's portraits, bestowed a similar salute on me, and descended to the carriage, accompanied by Fanny, who yelped wild with joy at recovering her mistress. She was driven away, never to revisit this neighborhood, but a regular correspondence was established between her and my master when things were more settled. Uh, I believe her new abode was in the south, near London. There she had a son born, a few months subsequent to her escape. So wait, is that... That's got to be Heathcliff's child. He was Christianed Linton, and from the first, she reported him to be an ailing, peevish child. So, Heathcliff has another heir. My goodness. Well, here we are. I mean, we're going to stop there. But we look, we, we had we had what we came for, and we got to feel pretty good about that, don't we? Oh, let us just celebrate. Let us just raise hosannas to the heavens and say, huzzah, we had ourselves an adventure. And I love it. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. There's, there's more tale to be told, but it sounds as if Isabella has now uh, exunted herself from the story. She's living somewhere in the south with a sickly son named Linton. And uh, so be it. We will conclude and pick it up next time on another rousing episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedron. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time.